One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, the home for the politically homeless and the podcast. For those of you who like their politics in colors other than red and blue, I'm your host, Dan Sally, and I am recording this from San Juan, Puerto Rico, of all places, the home of the best tasting arepa in the world. If you've never had one, book a flight. Now, if you're new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please share this with one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows, as you know, by word of mouth. Now, for the past few episodes, we've been talking about how the war in Ukraine could potentially change the global order as we know it, and specifically how it could accelerate a move away from the dollar as the world's reserve currency, as countries such as China and Russia attempt to insulate themselves from the power the U.S. has in levying sanctions by cutting nations off from access to the dollar-based financial system. And last week, we got a good understanding of how an agreement between the U.S. and Saudi governments that made the U.S. dollar the exclusive currency for buying and selling oil increased the power of the dollar in global markets. And this week, we're going to be exploring this idea a bit further to get into the nuts and bolts of how China is seeking to build an alternative to the dollar-based system of global finance. Now, to help us fill in the gaps, I invited Zoe Liu from the Council on Foreign Relations. She's an expert in economic statecraft and Chinese foreign policy, and her recent article, The Anti-Dollar Access, Russia and China's Plan to Evade U.S. Economic Power, outlines the efforts by Russia and China to de-dollarize the global economy and reduce the ability of the West to influence foreign policy via sanctions. This is a fascinating and dense episode, folks, and it lays a good foundation for some of the upcoming episodes we're going to be doing on the subject. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I I told you before we hit record that I studied Mandarin for a bit. And I've only told the story once before on this podcast. It was the very first uh-huh. episode we ever did. But when I was studying, uh-huh. I, you know, it came time for me to pick my Mandarin name, right? Uh-huh. For me to pick a, a name in Chinese. And so my my teacher was kind of going through some ideas as to how you might pick one. Uh-huh. And so my suggestion to her is I said, and again, at, uh, the intonation might be off. But I told her I wanted my name to be uh, Li Xiaolong. <laughs> yeah, Bruce Lee, isn't he? That's right. Yeah. That's right, Zoe. Because mm-hmm. I thought to myself, if I'm going to get to name myself anything, be somebody famous. Like, right. why not? So, right, exactly. Um, so I'll be picking that. I, 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 I find the language fascinating, and, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll be picking it up at some point in the future so the the dragon will return zoe but oh yeah nice nice that, that's great that's great i like the way you 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 describe it next time you 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 know the show would be the dragon comes back that's it that's it return <laughs> of the dragon Zoe. yes yes. yes yeah and i i really appreciate you taking the time to speak i mean since 
since I first found your work, which we're going to talk about in a bit, mm -hmm. I've really been digging into a lot of the stuff you've written, not just about you know, China's desire to create an alternate financial system outside of the dollar denominated system we have now, but also, you know, some of the stuff you've written on the, on the bricks, which for you listening, if you don't know, and if you listen to this podcast, you probably do, but it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And, and the, their desire as well, or, or some of their efforts to really kind of get out of this dollar denominated uh, financial system we have in the world. And um, where we're coming into this conversation really is in regards to, you know, the current situation in, in, in Russia and the fact that um, the dominance of the dollar has made sanctions such an effective weapon. And I guess to, to bring everybody up to speed, because we're going to be going into some really dense stuff. Can you can you just explain why access to the dollar and a dollar-backed financial system is so important to international trade and why that gives the U.S. such outsized sway when it comes to things like levying sanctions on other countries? Uh, yeah, sure. That's a great question. And, uh, you know, um, in the academic literature, there is this whole discussion with, on the uh, reserve currency status and uh, the dominant the dominant currency status. So here, when we are talking about the dominant currency in our current period, we are really talking about the U.S. dollar, and uh, you know the U.S. Do the dominant the dollar's dominant currency status is expressed in a varieties of different ways. Mm -hmm. For example. The U.S. dollar is the vehicle currency in international trade and finance. So what does that mean? It basically means in international transactions for countries that are, you know, uh, that for countries whose national currencies are not necessarily U.S. dollar. For example, trade in between China and Japan or trade between uh, Turkey and Germany. You know, for these countries, or for, for that matter, you know, um, Saudi Arabia and Korea, you know, for these countries, when they make international transactions, they, none of these countries use dollar as their home or national currency. But they, when they do international transactions, they still need to convert their own currency into U.S. dollar and use dollar to settle their transactions, right? So that basically means the U.S. dollar is uh, the primary or the dominant invoicing currency in international trade. And apart from that, it uh, is also the dominant currency uh, in international commodities market. So for example, if you look at uh, global oil prices, it is priced in US dollar. And uh, the US dollar also dominates global uh, equities market and uh, development finance, bank deposit, global corporate borrowing, sovereign bond issuance. And in times of crisis, the US dollar is also the uh, primary choice of a safe haven currency. This literally gives the United States a um, incredible or very potent uh, financial weapon in many ways, right? So when the United States uh, or the U.S. government uh, intends to, say, for example, in the current status, want to cut Russia off from the uh, SWIFT system, it literally means blocking Russia's access to the international financial messaging system, literally blocking the flow of uh, message. So if you block the flow of, of the financial message, you literally make the transaction um, 
in, incapable to happen. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And another question I, I, I probably should uh-huh. ask as well is, why is it that countries have chosen the dollar? Is it just a force of habit? Is it due to the dollar's stability? Or is there there's something else? Oh, that's a great question. I, I would say, you know, uh, the rise of the dollar to the international, do- the dominant currency in international trade and finance, it's, um, it's, it's really not... Um, it's really it's 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 really not as a result of um, um, the U.S. government active pushing. So and and in fact, before the U.S. dollar, you know, we probably we are familiar with you know the British sterling, and before that, there was the Dutch guild. Those were the currencies that came before the U.S. dollar as the uh, you know the primary. Uh, currency in international trade or the so-called international currency status. And in many ways, you know, in order to become a international currency, you literally has to be used outside of your home country. And uh, that basically means, you know, for your currency or for our currency, which is the U.S. dollar, if we want to use it in international transactions, we need our counterpart willing to take it. So in other words, there is there also needs to be uh, there also needs to have the, the international or outside demand for US dollar. The countries literally ha- want you we need our counterpart to be willing to take the dollar. And uh, there are varieties of ways, you know, in order it's not that it, it, not all currency can be considered as international currency, and uh, not all. Even if countries want their currency to become international currency, it's not always. Not all currency can be qualified, and there are man, many different ways. You know, scholars have different ways uh, to describe the qualification of international currency status. But uh, in general, we, we, in, in, in academic literature, we agree that there are three fundamental criteria, if you will, uh, to, for a currency to become an international currency or to at least be a contender. One is, you know, the size of the home economy must be big. And then secondly, there also needs to be um, the confidence in the value and stability of the currency. And then thirdly, the development of the currency's financial markets, uh, especially with regard to the depth and liquidity of the financial market, uh, needs to be uh, relatively developed. And uh, on top of that, there also needs to be the dependability as well as, you know, the openness. And if we look at, uh, you, know, you know, the U.S. dollar as well as the dollar denominated, you know, U.S. Treasury market, you know, it, it's the largest uh and most liquid market uh, in, 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 the financial, in, the, in the financial world. And, you know, the U.S. enjoys the largest GDP uh, in, in the world. And, you know, international investors have, have great confidence in, in the in U.S. economy as well as the U.S. dollar. So, you know, at least so far, you know, based upon all these metrics, the U.S. dollar is the, 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 the probably uh, undisputed uh, dominant currency in, in the world in, in many ways. And, uh, you know, there are other contenders in many ways, for example, the euro and, uh, and the renminbi. Uh, but, but, you know, the euro doesn't necessarily have the depth and uh, uh, liquidity compared to the U.S. financial market. And uh, the, the, the renminbi 
doesn't necessarily have the Chinese financial market is not necessarily as open, and more importantly, the RMB has currency uh, capital control on top of it, which means you know in times of crisis or when international investors want to pull out of RMB, want to pull out their pull out their investment in the uh, Chinese market, if um, you know because of ca uh, capital control. That basically means there is a lack of liquidity. If you don't, if you cannot get your money out of the market, you don't have liquidity, right? So you know, along these these different dimensions, um, the dollar is the dollar uh, the dollar enjoys the dominant currency status. Not on the one hand because of you know the dollar's own attractiveness, and then on the other hand, international uh, investors and the international or the trade counterpart. Would want to take U.S. dollar other than uh, the other currencies. So, in order to be an effective reserve currency, you need to have a, a large network. Uh, in order to access that currency, you need to have a lot of liquidity, and there needs to be relative stability. And that's what the Dutch guilder provided uh, back in the 1600s, and that's what is what ha that's the case with the U.S. dollar today. And that's why the U.S. has such enormous power when it comes to. Uh, dictating international money flow, uh, international money flows. Now, one of the things that's come up in recent episodes is how China is seeking to insulate itself from this effect. And and I'm wondering, like, when did China start exploring alternatives to this dollar-based financial system, and and what prompted them to do that? Uh, I would say. China's uh, exploration, to borrow your um, borrow your phrase, you know, China's exploration of alternatives to the dollar-denominated financial system, right? Uh, I would say this broadly speaking. I would categorize this into um, two aspects. One is uh, China's seeking uh, the. China's seeking of the broader or international use of the RMB in global markets, or the so-called you know the process of uh, RMB internationalization, and that can be traced uh, to late two thousands. Mm -hmm. And then the other aspect is the building of the RMB based uh, financial infrastructure. So one way is the currency, the other is the financial infrastructure, and. Uh, uh, associated with you know RMB internationalization, it can be you know we talk uh, we probably read this in the in news headlines and all that you know it's it's mostly expressed in the uh, the use of RMB in bilateral trade and bilateral investment and uh, uh, you know in uh, RMB uh, bilateral currency swaps with other countries and uh, I think between two thousand nine. And uh, 2020, uh, China has in, entered into about, uh, you know, entered into bilateral currency swaps agreement with uh, around 41 countries, and um, about the end of the, the the value, the total value of the bilateral currency swaps is something around uh, 3.5 trillion RMB, and that is. Uh, Depending upon you know uh, renminbi dollar exchange rate, it's something around five hundred and fifty billion U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. 
So that's one aspect. Then the other aspect is, you know, the, the so-called financial infrastructure. And probably, again, these days we hear a lot, uh, you know, in the context of Russia, right? You know, Russia built its own SPSF and uh, China has its own. Uh, and China began to explore its own renminbi-based financial infrastructure go back to uh, 2012, 2012, yes. So it's the so-called cross-border interbank payment system, or the so-called CIPS, and uh, uh, started the exploration or development. The, PB, the People's Bank of China or the PBOC, the Chinese Central Bank, started the independent de- development of this CIPS platform in 2012, and then they launched uh, the first or the prototype or the first phase of the platform in 2015. And um, uh, there, are, there are a lot of discussions about CIPS these days. And uh, um, they, they, but I think, you know, it's, it's important to make the clarification, knowing that, you know, it's important to realize CIPS is different from SWIFT in that SWIFT is a financial messaging system, whereas uh, CIPS works not just as a financial messaging system, but also a settlement system, meaning it can actually do the whole debit and the credit process in between different banks and bank account holders. So, you know, these, these are the kind of, uh, you know, the two aspects of China's uh, exploration of, of um, renminbi denominated financial system. And then um, the... I would say, you know, the in terms of, you know, you you ask about the the reason, right? The reason why China would do this. Uh, I would say there are uh, both economic reasons and the geopolitical reasons. You know, economically, um, the broader use of renminbi in international trade and investment would, you know, help China uh, or any other country who wanted to use their own had the inten- intention to to use their own. Uh, national currency, international trade and uh, and investment, not just China, you know, any other countries as well. You know, if you were if you are able to use your own currency, international trade and investment, you can basically reduce the exchange rate risk in international cross border investment or transactions. And uh, it then it also uh, it this basically means you would the country would have less reliance on foreign currencies such as U.S. dollar, as well as the uh, foreign currency associated institutions, such as the payment system, right? So in the case of China, uh, you know, the more China uh, promotes RMB in cross-border settlement, the more, the less China would be dependent upon U.S. dollar and U.S. dollar denominated system. So in times of geopolitical tensions, such as, you know, when China, when in this current case, the U.S can uh, threaten to cut Russia off the SWIFT system. And if China were able to develop its own alternative, probably this means China has um, can, can basically hedge against this geopolitical tension, right? And then uh, thirdly, I would say, you know, similar to the U.S., the United States can use its uh, dollar dominant currency status to basically borrow very cheaply in international uh, in international financial market. If China were able to uh, internationalize its own renminbi currency, its own currency, which is the renminbi, probably China can also borrow cheaply um, in international market, in international capital market as well. So, you know, I would just say you know, why China would want to do this, both economically and uh, geopolitically. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I think it, it's it's funny as you're talking too. I think a lot of the times the way we discuss this in the United States mm-hmm. is almost like an assault on America in a way, or an assault on 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 U.S. Uh, financial interests. But in reality, it sounds like there's there there's there's a de- desire for autonomy and there's a desire for uh, you know, like you mentioned, access to lending, things of that nature. Yeah. Um, one, one, one question I, I, I have for you there is, mm-hmm. you know, there's this big interdependence between the Chinese and, and U.S. economies in yeah. terms of, of, of trade. And a lot of that really depends on the dollar's current status. So, and, and uh, Zoe, you can, feel free to grade me on a pass fail here with, with how I describe this, but you know, for, for you listening, like in order, you can view the U S debt as excessive borrowing, or you can use it in a, or you can think of it in a way as the world kind of storing its excess savings. And, you know, one of the things that allows countries to run, enormous trade deficits with us is the fact that a lot of that money is, or a lot of the money that they make from that is parked in U.S. treasuries, which allows us to borrow. So I I guess like, how does China achieve financial autonomy without fundamentally changing the the trade relationship with the U.S. and the rest of the world? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. That's a great question. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right. You know, uh, you know the, uh, the on the one, the dollar's dominant currency status, or m- more specifically, the dollar being the uh, most widely held reserve currency, uh, is one of the re- is the primary reason you know to fac- fac- facilitate on the one hand U.S. Uh, trade deficit, but then U.S. trade deficit also means it's uh, other countries' uh, financial asset in the United States, right? So, in the case of China, you know, when the the reason China was has been able to accumulate uh, the more than three trillions of foreign exchange reserves, and the majority of which have has been invested in uh, U.S. dollar denominated assets, and more specifically, U.S. treasuries, right? Since 2000, late it is early 2000, China actually uh, domestically started this whole debate. What is the cost or the so-called opportunity cost of accumulating huge amount of foreign exchange reserves and invest all these reserves in U.S. Uh, in U.S. dollar denominated asset? You know, the whole discussion about opportunity cost in those days was about well, you know, the fluctuation of the dollar exchange rate means. It, with, even if the PBOC or China, the Chinese economy didn't do anything, their value would, they would lose value if the dollar depreciated, right? So that's the so why not explore other potential higher yield uh, investment opportunities in global market? In other words, to diversify their foreign exchange reserve management. So starting from those days, there has been this domestic discussion, but mostly in the context of opportunity cost and reserve uh, uh, re, uh, diversify the ex- diversified reserve management discussion. Not so much about geopolitical uh, tensions. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, um, Chinese uh, in the in the aftermath of uh, Asian global financial crisis. Uh, you know, we realize a lot of Asian countries realize it's important to have 
a sufficient amount of reserve buffer to defend the currency status. And then on the other hand, uh, in 1999, uh, Dai Xianglong, who was then the governor of the P- Bank of the PBOC or the People's Bank of China, in 1999, he argued that uh, you know the instability in the global financial system was because of was primarily because of a few countries' national currency has enjoyed the dominant currency status. He did not specifically say it was the U.S. dollar, but you know it was the, he was inferring to the U.S. dollar. So that was in the, in the aftermath of Asian financial crisis. And then after the 2007 to 2008 global financial crisis, you know, Dai Xianglong's successor, uh, Mr. Zhou Xiaochuan, you know, famous Chinese uh, central banker, right? He openly discussed the necessity of reforming international monetary system. And he also, he also basically called out the similar, uh, a, similar, uh, a similar issue, which is, you know, again, you know, the international, a few countries, uh, dominant currency status contributed to the instability. And, you know, you see this kind of pattern happen, happen again and again, meaning China, on the one hand, domestically speaking, it has the intention to diversify its reserve, uh, its management of foreign exchange reserves. And then on the other hand, internationally, China has the intention not necessarily to uh, dethrone the dollar, but really to diversify the international currency status to improve the interna- RMB internationalization or the more, the broader use of inter- RMB, uh, the broader use of RMB in international trade and investment. But okay. yeah, but I would just add one thing on on that though, uh, with the you know the in in recent years, especially. Uh, you know, since the deterioration of um, U.S.-China relations, uh, since the since the previous administration, right? Uh, there have been more um, more explicit callings in China, not just to diversify reserve management, you know, away from the U.S. dollar, but also, you know, the calling to. Uh, prepare a renminbi decoupling with the U.S. dollar. You know, at the top Chinese official level, nobody has has said that um, on record. But there was this person who, Mr. Uh, Zhou Li, who is a um, a former deputy director of the Chinese Communist Party's International Liaison Department. So he's like, you know, he's, um, you know, the Communist Party's International Liaison Department, it manages, it's the party's um, organ or the party's institution that manages international relations with the foreign political parties, organizations, and things like that, right? So it's a party institution managing international relations. So this person, Mr. Zhou Li, uh, he wrote an article published by a by by um by a uh, Renmin University, Chongyang, um, uh, inter I think Chongyang uh, Finance Institution. So he in that particular article he called out. He literally said, you know, China needs to be ready for Renminbi's decoupling with the U.S. dollar, and uh, he said, you know, China should. Uh, make preparation to insulate itself from the dollar hegemon and uh, gradually achieve the decoupling of renminbi from the U.S. currency. And he also argued that you know the dollar denominated swift the international payment system, uh, as well as you know the U.S. ability to extend its long arm jurisdiction for policies 
uh, outside of America and all that. You know, he used examples like Russia and uh, Iran, you know, countries that are under U.S. sanctions. He basically used this as, as examples to say, you know, deteriorating relationship with, with the United States might exp uh, you know, expose China to greater risk like this. And he's not the only person calling out this. One of China's um, top uh, financial regulatory agency, you know, uh, Mr. Fang Xinghai, you know, he was the vice chairman of China's uh, Security Regulatory Commission, or the Chinese version of the U.S. SEC, right? So, yeah. you know, he basically, he, you know, he, uh, Mr. Fang, he warned in a speech that China must take urgent preparations for uh, being cut off from the U.S. dollar payment system. And he literally said, you know, he literally argued that maybe internationalization is a must-have in order to offset uh, external financial pressure. So, you know, before, 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 this, uh, before the, 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 the deterioration of U.S.-China relations, calls like this did not happen at, um, you know, at, at a such you know, at, at such such level, you know, mostly just scholars talking about the need to diversify a foreign exchange reserve management, you know, use foreign exchange reserve to invest in overseas mines, uh, strategic resources, foreign companies and all that. But, you know, deteriorating relationship with the United States really has, uh, you know, uh, propelled more costs domestically to, you know, prepare, not necessarily intentionally to insulate China from, from the dollar system, but, you know, to prepare for the worst case scenario. Understood. Yeah. And there's, it sounds like there's kind of two motivations here. And, and one that you mentioned is the idea of insulating the economy against economic instability. And, yeah, and yeah. To, to your point, you know, Again, during the Asian financial crisis, that's when we saw a lot of inflows into U.S. dollars, and mm -hmm. then uh, which facilitated cheap borrowing, which in in part maybe could be could be blamed for the financial crisis. I mean, certainly cheap borrowing was the, was the root of that, and that's just kind of one example. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like the second part is also, let's call it for lack of a better phrasing, political instability. The yeah. fact that China can't rely on relations with the U.S. to be rosy. And I think you only need to look at the last five years to, to, to see that. And so they really need to, to, to protect themselves from that. And uh, from, you know, if we can actually understand China's behavior or any other country's behavior, you know, like Russia developed its own financial managing system, you know, like Russia reduced its dollar reserves uh, even uh, since 2014, right? So we, uh, swapping out of dollar into euro and renminbi and the Japanese yen and gold, you know, uh, for, for countries like this, you know, why they would want to do this? From if, if we just, you know, think ourselves as a country and uh, we understand in personal finance, we do something called risk management. And uh, one thing, risk management 101 is about, on the one hand, diversification. On the other hand, risk hedging if you cannot buy insurance, right? Mm. So developing your own alternatives is on the one hand is about diversification. And then on the other hand, it is about risk hedging. So in many ways, countries may not necessarily, I mean, even, even President Putin, he himself, he, was, he, he said on record, he said, you know, it's not that I wanted to, it's not that Russia wanted to, you know, reduce its dollar reserves. It's just that we cannot rely upon it, and we had to. We were forced to do it. So, in many ways, you know, countries are the more 
you know, the more uh, the United States, you know, we use our sanction power, the more we would incentivize our other countries to, you know, diversify. And the consequence of that would be the weakening of the dollar's dominant currency status. Yeah, is there Russia is an obvious example of a of a country that really wants to move away from this system? D- does China have any other allies in this race, or are they doing this on their own? Um, I would say that I would say that uh, you know. I wouldn't. I guess I would not describe China as actively pursuing de-dollarization. I would say it because you know China's three trillion dollars, more than three trillion dollars of foreign exchange reserves, and uh, and uh, uh, most of the most of that are invested in U.S. dollar asset and uh, China's uh, sovereign sovereign wealth funds. A tremendous amount of sovereign wealth fund money are also invested in dollar denominated asset. So in many ways, if the dollar were to become uh, you know, volatile sometime, mm-hmm. China would not benefit from it either, right? So yeah. uh, I, I, I would say, uh, you know, I, w- I would not describe China as actively seeking to de-dollarization, but rather China is seeking, is hedging against the risk of being cut off from the dollar uh, system. And uh, to that end, um, does China have other, you know, uh, does, is there any other country that share China's perspective? I would say yes, and uh, both for political reasons and economic reasons. So, for example, for just the pu- for pure economic reasons, there are countries, including U.S. allies, that are actually seeking to divers- to dilute the U.S. dollar's dominant power in the global system. For example, you know, uh, in 2019, uh, Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. Uh, spoke at uh, you know the Jack, uh, Jackson Hole Symposium, you know where it is the, a big, big conference, big gathering of all major central bankers in the world, right? And during that during that symposium, he argued that uh, the world needs to end the risky reliance on U.S. dollar, and he called out saying that you know well you know we are too dependent on the U.S. dollar, and hence we need to end this. And uh, uh, he, obviously, you know, he's not the first, you know, U.S. U, U.S ally or U.S. friends to, 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 to see this, right? You know, the, the whole discussion about the dollar's exorbitant privilege was given by uh, De Gaulle, right? So, you know, our allies has the intention to do that. And then on the other hand, and then the, the, the other part, you know, India is also a very interesting part, you know, the largest democracy in the world and a very uh, important, very important strategic partner of the United States. But, you know, India has been developing, you know, alternative payment mechanisms with, with, with Russia. And, uh, you know, it, it is before, even before this, um, even before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, when, uh, when uh, in the, in the, in, during the Trump administration, you know, the, um, uh, the United States basically sanctioned Russia's uh, arms sales, but knowing that India imports it's more than 60% of its arms from Russia. So how could the, how, how did the Indians do it from, from Russia? They basically developed, you know, using the rupee, rupee, rupo uh, special exchange mechanism to purchase uh, Russian arms. And, uh, you know, you see this, uh, in, you, you see this being played out uh, after Russian's invasion, right? And then another example of U.S. allies who have uh, taken the move on this 
is the European is the European Union. Several European Union countries set up this so-called the um, instax system. Is the you know EU Iran uh, is so-called EU Iran instrument in support of trade exchanges. If I'm not if if I remember correctly, you know the so-called instax system is basically the is a trans trans it's a uh, settlement mechanism between uh, the European Union and Iran, and it's like it's the brainchild of uh, primary EU ally, our EU ally, uh, you know France, Germany, and the UK. You know they started this system in January two thousand nineteen as a special purpose vehicle to help uh, new companies to do business with Iran. And uh, the idea was to facilitate non-U.S. dollar transactions to basically avoid uh, breaking U.S. sanctions. So, in other words, you know, Ch- China is not the only country who is interested in doing this, and Russia is not the only country. We have our allies who are also doing this. The, you know, one of the things I, I found fascinating as I was reading your your uh, work is this whole interest India has because of, of course, like we're in a weird situation in the U S where we're supporting India's main rival Pakistan militarily, or at least we were, mm-hmm. uh, India's buying its arms from Russia. And so even though we're very aligned ideologically and aligned economically from a military standpoint, we're sort of working against each other. And I just found the complexities of that, uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, one one question I have for you, and 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 you know, as as I was looking through your work, and as as I was writing out my questions, I, I I realized how U.S. centric a lot of my thinking on the subject was. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in, in you know, and I guess like my 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 question is like I think here a lot of people would would make the argument that mm-hmm. the current dollar based economic system isn't perfect. But it's also generally composed of you know, stable democratic nations that work in mutual self-interest. And is there a counter to that argument? Um, I don't think I would. I don't think I have a good or a credible counter argument to that. I yeah. think in many ways I would agree with you because, you know, the use of uh, the the use of sanctions or economic sanctions, right, and uh, especially based upon, uh, especially based upon, uh, you know, the the dollar's dominant currency status, mm-hmm. has been a very potent. I would not necessarily say effective because you know it depends upon how you would define effectiveness right but the use of sanction power to achieve foreign policy goals has been a very potent u.s foreign policy tool uh, across the years so and and you know the in many ways yes it is um I, I guess I would not necessarily say this is um, uh, the, the use of sanction power is is going to be good to promote uh, human to pr- promote you know dem- democratic values or to to help promote um, human right human right issues and things like that because the more we use our sanction power the more uh, it is going to cause other countries to realize. Uh, you know their vulnerability. Hence, in other words, 
this goes back to former um, Secretary of um, Treasury's point, Jack Lew. So he said, you know, he pointed this out. Um, the more we use our sanctions, the less the sanction power is going to be. In other words, it may backfire uh, specifically because it is going to incentivize other countries to um, you know, diversify away from the dollar. So from that perspective, despite that, even, even if we have a, you know, from, from Washington's point of view, even if we have a genuine uh, good intention, you know, we are, we, we, we are going to sanction dictators and all that. Um, if the sanction, if, if we just look at, you know, the performance of the sanctions, is, uh, you know, we, we have been sanctioning Iran since uh, late 1970s. But it looks like we have, we're, if we define success or effectiveness of sanction, meaning the change of regime or the improvement of uh, Iranian uh, people's life, uh, it looks like we haven't achieved that. So in many ways, you know, who actually bear the cost of sanctions, especially, you know, sanctions based upon the dollar's dominance, in many ways it is uh, the normal people, you know, the people yeah. who leave, um, you know, who, who, who need, you know, who, who, who need to go to the grocery store to buy bread and uh, who need to go to the gas station to, to buy gas, right? And the sanctions also, you know, the, the more we use our dollars uh, dominance to sanction other countries, the more we are going to bear the cost on ourselves as well. You know, uh, as we observe now, the once we started to sanction Russia, the global global energy prices went up. You know, last year we were observing negative prices, and then now, you know, we are observing the oil price go at one point as high as 130 and Putin even threatened that, you know, if the Western countries are, um, you know, going to sanction, collectively sanction Russians oil and gas export, uh, you know, the, the, the world is going to see three more than $300 per barrel in, for, for, for oil. So he, he basically made that particular argument. So in other words, yes, you know, you are right. You know, the, uh, yes, you know, the, we, the the the, the dollar-based economic system is is literally the fundamental for the fu- it's the foundation for our global uh, financial system and economic system today. And uh, yes, you know it's a lot of the uh, dollar-supporting countries or countries that are uh, at least less grumpy <laughs> about <laughs> the dollar's dominant current dominant currency status is you know most is is our friends and allies and the countries that are uh, not necessarily vulnerable to dollars uh, dollar US sanction power but that doesn't mean uh, you know uh, we can we can use our sanction power to uh, with the goal to change foreign countries' behavior, because on the one hand it may not may not necessarily work, and then on the other hand it is very costly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess then should the should the should China's efforts to mm-hmm. create an alternative system to the dollar should they cause angst in the United States, or should they be causing as much angst as they are because? Uh, you know, as, as I've looked into the subject, what I've realized is there actually are some advantages to having the U.S. no longer be the reserve currency. You know, one of the primary ones being if the U.S. Do- if the value of the U.S. dollars begins to fall, 
that makes a lot of sectors that have really been damaged over the last 30 years more competitive, you know, manufacturing being one of them. So, you know, so again, like, should, should this be creating so much angst or, because like what I'm hearing from you is, you know, saying there, there's obviously the ability to borrow, which is great, but the the, the sanctions aren't necessarily the most effective tool. And there's a lot of downsides to being having the status that the dollar has. So is this something that should that people should be worrying about? Um, I would say, uh, at least now, uh, I would not worry too much about China's uh, exploration of alternative um, financial system because um, it is... It is still in a very rudimental stage. I mean, if you just look at uh, the share of yuan payment or the renminbi payment in um, the SWIFT system, it is uh, the latest number by uh, February this year. It was um, 2.2, around 2.2 percent. It's way much less than the United than the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, uh, so in many ways, you know, the and more importantly, you know, the use of dollar in international that if you just look at it, you know. The, the over-the-counter dollar uh, exchange transactions is more than 40%. It's literally like dominated the, the, the rest of the currencies. So in, in other words, you know, the, the U.S. dollar is, uh, is, is, is a, is a, um, uh, is a matured adult, whereas the internationalization of renminbi or the use of renminbi both as the international currency or, or, or the development of renminbi um, infrastructure is very rudimental. It's like baby steps. But I would warn that it, it, this does not necessarily mean the U.S. should uh, think about, should just think that the dominant currency status is going to be there forever. On the one hand, history tells us that it, it may not necessarily be the case. And then on the other hand, the, we are literally talking about current, uh, a country that has a massive amount of people, rap, uh, you know, the second largest economy in the world that has the country the, the 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 government is dedicated to promote the internationalization of renminbi which is a very different uh, sentiment compared with the united states you know the us government did not want it did not want to promote the us dollar uh, as an international currency back in you know back, back in the back back in the 19 in, in the in in the 1920s it, the the government did not want to do that. Even people on Wall Street did not did not want to do that. And then here, because you know they realized the cost and the burden of being the international reserve currency and all that. But here now you have a country whose government is very interested in promoting the international use of renminbi. And then on the other hand, there is this whole different dimension called you know digital renminbi and cryptocurrency and all that. Although the Chinese government said, you know, they are not go- they, they officially banned the mining of cryptocurrency or the market based, they are still very much ahead of anybody else in terms of the development of uh, central bank uh, sponsored digital renminbi or digital currency. So th- this is an entirely new, different uh, world that we're talking about. So we th- that's why I think yes, we should not be too worried or at least we should not be paranoid about you know oh well the dollar is going the dollars is going to be dethroned by RMB tomorrow no that is not not going to be that is not going to happen anytime soon as long as the international investors are having you know confidence in the US system in the US economy the dollar is going to enjoy you know its dominant currency status but 
that does not necessarily mean the dollar is going to be, you know, the king forever. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider leaving it a review. And if you didn't, and could keep this between us, that would be great as well. I'll have a link to Zoe's articles in the show notes on ydhty.com this Friday. Just go to ydhty.com, click episodes in the upper right-hand corner, and you shall find. Now, from this conversation, it's clear that China has bigger plans for the renminbi, but it is also obvious there's a lot of work to do to get it to the point where it can displace the dollar. And in our next episode, we're going to discuss how other countries have approached internationalizing their currency to get a better idea of what the likelihood of a renminbi-denominated future is. I hope you join me as always the music that would normally be playing now blah, 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 is courtesy of Quellertac. ydhty's producer and editorial advisor is the admirable admiral adam yaffe ydhty is produced in loving memory of the big geno jason putney until the next this is dan sally adios